So again, we have endured yet another dramatic week. To be sure, this is the week that seemed to dash any hopes that this thing is going to go away quickly. We've now been put into a sequence of events where, of course, the whole month of April is in a more or less a, a, a quarantine sort of a environment, and we don't even know if that will be enough. That's not the way you want to hear a sermon begin, but it's what we've been hearing. We've heard even recently that perhaps the, the uh, apex will be take another 14 to maybe 30 days. And then, of course, there's the treacherous walk down that mountain, as I mentioned in my letter this week, that, that how do we then begin to work down off that, and how long will that take? And, well, I'm just saying what we're hearing, okay? <laughs> and so I ask you, how are you doing? I mean, how is this impacting you? I suspect more and more I'm hearing, and you're saying, this is getting old. The novelty of virtual reality, amazing as it is, is a gift of God that allows us to have at least some virtual and spiritual communion one to another. It's still virtual, and it's riddled with the technological cumbersome at best. I've loved some of these little memes that have come out recently about that and how uh, some, I don't know if you've seen it, I can't reference it now, but we watched one uh, this week as a staff team and just, you know, the, a mock conference room and people literally walking in and walking out and interacting the way we do on a conference call. And yeah, it's good to laugh and I encourage us to be laughing at ourselves, not taking ourselves or one another too seriously. It, it takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? So how are you doing? It's getting old. Already it's getting old. And I hear more and more of us crying out the words that we heard cried out even by Habakkuk in the Old Testament. How long? How long, Lord? And where are you? And what are you doing here? Well, the fact of the matter is that there probably isn't now going to be a, quote, Easter surprise. We've got that settled. We will be back here, all 10 of us. And we will be, of course, broadcasting an Easter service with a few extra instruments. And you will be at home perhaps with a few of you uh, participating in Easter. And so the question I ask is this, what would the response be, the godly response to all of this? And the answer is, quite frankly, given to us by Habakkuk and repeated from Habakkuk in the book of Hebrews. Let me read it again. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, that is confidence in God. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he quotes here, Habakkuk. He quotes the, uh, the, uh, the Habakkuk hundreds of years earlier, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Today I want to talk to us about the call of a patient faith. A call that wants to, by God's providence and circumstance, reset itself on the first principles, the first convictions that ought to be ruling our dispositions, our lives, and our thoughts, and our behaviors 
It's a patient faith. We'll look at a couple of stories. The story of Habakkuk and later in the sermon, the story of Cyprian in the second and third century. We'll remember our people, our family, and what they have endured and how their patient faith proved, proved that it is not in vain that we believe in God. But let's first pray as we come to this text. Father, thank you for all who are gathered here, both here in this room and throughout our city, greater city, and in their rooms. And we thank you, Lord, that we are one in one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one spirit. We're coming together. We seek now for you to speak into our lives, Father. We pray that you would speak to us in our souls. Come now, Lord Jesus, speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I want to take you back to the 7th century B.C. and the prophet of Habakkuk. He saw his world crumbling around him. And the more hopeless the future seemed, the more God's people were tempted to live for the present. Isn't that what we do? Let's get it now. Let's do what we got to do now. We begin to take things in our own hands. So they were doing the same thing. And so the people of Israel, God's people, more and more forgot God in their pursuits of wealth and worldly pleasures, but most especially, they forgot God as their ultimate confidence and hope. This was manifest in various ways, but most especially hideous to the prophets was the way in which they began to put their confidence in political regimes and nation states to substitute for God. This had been a history already throughout Israel, going all the way back to Egypt and even again here, as in the days of Habakkuk, the people of Israel were, were forming an alliance with Egypt yet again in order to protect them, they believed, from this great other superpower emerging upon them called Babylon. They looked to Egypt for their provisions and their hope, and this this was incredibly upsetting to God, whose people, whose, whose Israel, whose people of the God, the church of the Old Testament is a church not of this world, whose, whose power is not of this world, whose trust is not in this world. It's the trust in the great King God. And so while professing loyalty to God, the old covenant church of Habakkuk era had grown weary and impatient and waiting for the rewards that God had promised them of a promised land and a flourishing an abundant life. And as a result, they began trusting not in God, but in their own human ingenuity and political maneuvering in order to build for themselves a heaven on earth. Sound familiar? It started in Eden. It goes through, of course, the Tower of Babel, Noah. It's just what we do in our flesh. The whole thing, though, was about to come to a tragic halt as it always does, if not at death itself, for what Habakkuk had feared was indeed starting to happen in the great campaign of the Babylonian army, which had begun to march towards Jerusalem just days prior to the Babylonian captivity. These words that we have read were penned. And so the task at hand for Habakkuk, seeing as he did the coming days of suffering and trial, was to exhort the remaining remnant faithful Israel to be patient in their faith, to be patient in waiting for God to come and to make good on all his promises. 
even when the whole world seemed to be going to hell in a handbasket, seemed to be crumbling all around them, even when there was, doesn't seem to be much benefit in believing God, even when in fact it seems that to believe in God was really irrelevant to their contemporary issues, perhaps even to make things worse rather than better, maybe even in this life. I think we have that temptation, don't we? I heard of a conversation just this week between neighbors. It was a good conversation, an honest conversation about COVID-19. And somehow the topic of religion came up. And one person said in the conversation, it's sort of like, and it's an honest thing to say. I'm sure we, if we're not so, if we're not too religious on the outside, we probably are thinking it. This is a medical issue. Praying isn't going to help. Hmm. We might not say that if we are churchy people. But I wonder if God could expose our hearts, expose our consciences, expose by our activity and what we obsess upon. Are we obsessing on God's word? We would if it were our hope. Or are we obsessing on this latest dramatic event in medical or political or even financial situations. You know, prayer is something we should do, it went on, but kind of like an Eastern thing, you know, it, it's, it's good for calming the soul, for bringing some inner peace. Well, there's truth to that. But you see, Habakkuk, <laughs> that's exactly what was happening in his day. These people continued to profess faith in Christ. They could continue to practice the rituals of that faith. But they had lost faith in God. Habakkuk called for faith, and by faith he meant a patient faith. By this he meant more than a, some kind of a positive thinking, best practice, or even a vague sense of, of, of religious practice to help calm the soul. By this he meant a conviction, a conviction that God is real, and this is exactly the words of Hebrews later in his book, that God is real and therefore he is a rewarder of those who believe in him. He's real. What do you mean by that, pastor? What do you mean real? I mean real. I mean like both spiritually and yet he's been manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ, real. I mean God who moves all things is the mover of all movements. Even Aristotle got that right. What is God? God is the unmoved mover of all things, he would say. It's not far enough. There's no personhood in that, that power of Aristotle's. But it's right, at least in the sense that to be God, God is the mover of all things. That is to say that, yes, God uses many and various instruments, whether medical, financial, political, educational, ingenuity, and all of this. We're not downplaying that at all, and we're praying for them, as we will later in the service. Thankful for them. But do you understand that the ultimate power of all those powers, the one that moves the stars and moves the research and moves this being discovered like this and that being done like this and all the things that we discover in the context of looking for vaccines and how often they can appear even to be serendipitous. Oh, this one works for this one. What do you know? I'm sure the medical people are just crawling all over the place right now. 
Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. There went a lot of stuff and research. Yeah, I know. That's not the point. It's the point that God is. And he's a rewarder of those who believe in him. That's what Habakkuk was trying to say. Believe in God. By faith, he meant don't put your hope in making alliances with those who follow other gods. Nation states, those appointed by God even. Even Herod was the hand of God. Even Egypt was the hand of God, we're told in Scripture. And yet, for the church to make an alliance with in their soul and even in their practice in a manner that we are in any way now handing away the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ or the exclusive protection and the exclusive provision of God through Christ, even if through these other things, but to very subtly to put ourselves in a situation where we are at the mercy of these nation states, that has proven over and over and over again to be a grave mistake. I was thankful this week in our session meeting, especially called meeting, where we had to consider our relationship to church and state on a few issues, particularly with the CARES Act, and it was encouraging that we came to the conclusion that whatever we do, we cannot, we cannot compromise the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ and his provision. By faith, he meant a patient faith, one that is resolved to continue the course, even when it seems circumstantially not to be working. That's why this idea, this incredible focus of Hebrews quoting them is that faith is, is not seen. The arguments, the, the way that we think when faith ceases to be the patient conviction that Habakkuk and Hebrews is talking about goes something like this. We start with the circumstances of our lives. We start with the situations. We reason together how we can manipulate all these circumstances. And then at the very end, we tagged on, oh, and this is what we believe in Scripture. Probably go to a passage, pick something out that we can take out of its context and say, this will therefore rationalize biblically as Christians why we can do blank, blank, and blank. Moral reasoning, if you studied that, even as a science, you understand that it always ends where it begins, that moral reasoning. If it begins with circumstances, if it begins with, with what we feel and immediate gratifications and what we see and, and the felt needs, if you will, of, of what we have, if that's where it begins, it will end with that, even if rationalized by Scripture. What Habakkuk was saying, start your reasoning, start your moral calculations what do you believe, Christians? What do you believe? Do you believe in God? Do you believe he's a rewarder of those who believe in him? That he has a purposefulness in all things whatsoever that comes to pass? Do you believe that? And so here it is. This great lesson of Habakkuk was not lost upon the author, the pastor of the Hebrews. His message and his words, the righteous shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk. You see, hundreds of years later, not long after Christ's first coming, already the people of God were beginning to grow impatient for the promise of his return, especially as things were getting pretty nasty in their relationship with Rome. The sense of urgency and fear is evident by what the Hebrews pastor said to comfort them, LOL. I don't know if I'd find this very comforting, but I guess it shows you how drastic things were. 
what must have been life for them when to comfort them, the pastor said, hey guys, be of good cheer. You haven't shed your blood yet. We're not even close to that. Not at least in the sense that they were describing. See, it was in this context the Hebrews pastor along with the other New Testament writers. He's not the only one to quote Habakkuk here. They remembered Habakkuk in his days and their temptations and this pastor Habakkuk's exhortation to the people in his day. Especially they latched on to what had evidently become a revered and famous saying. It is quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17. It becomes the very thesis in Romans 1.17 of the whole book that the righteous shall live by faith alone. Galatians 3 quotes it. And here in Hebrews 10, it is quoted. Let me take you back to that situation now. Fast forward into the first century and this pastoral letter, much like the letters you're receiving from our church, these are letters like that situationally given to these congregations, often to bring them back to their faith. We're in the first century now, and our passage, he begins with the exhortation to remember the previous days that God had proven himself to be faithful, even as a means to encourage them to be patient in their faith. He says, recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a very hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who who mistreated you. Notice the great hardships. Already now we see under the Diocletian reign of Rome that Christians were being persecuted. There were rumors that there was an impending movement of great martyrdom that would be required in order to believe in the lordship of Christ. Notice I said lordship. No one was ever killed for being a follower of Jesus alone. There were many such religious leaders. What got them in trouble is they confessed that Christ alone, alone was their Savior and Lord, that Jesus is Lord. That got them in trouble. So too even today. Most people would have no problem with us being a follower of Jesus, even in a day that's relatively secular or whatever. It's when we believe it's the only Lord, that Jesus is not just a sectarian Lord, the Lord of the West or the Lord of the East or the Lord of America or the Lord of this sect or that sect. It's that he is a Lord universal. He is of all nations the Lord. That's when it gets us in trouble today, doesn't it? That sense of exclusivity that really is inclusivity if we understood it right, that it's an invitation to say he is just as much your Lord as our Lord but it can appear very judgmental to believe something like that as it did in the days of Rome. That's what got them in trouble. Instead of cowering, though, in secret, the pastor tells them in their day they were to be active in mercy for those who were being persecuted. He says in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe that death is a portal? A door? Not a concrete wall? If you do, somehow 
the things of this world go strangely dim, as we sung in that song. Somehow we begin to imagine that I could be happy without my current lifestyle, maybe. The drama that I hear so often is, is not challenging the presupposition that do I really need all of this to flourish and to be happy, even in this life? But most especially, where's the premise? Where's the settled conviction that this life is penultimate, that this life is not the ultimate life? There really is a very real reunion and a very real physical reality that awaits us all. A heaven brought to earth, this earth, self-same body, self-same earth becomes the place that we yearn for it to be. That's the vision of the resurrection that we'll celebrate next week in our Easter service. And so his exhortation, therefore, he begged them, be careful how you do your moral reasoning. Be careful how you obsess during the week. Be careful what you listen to and what you take in and what you believe. Do not, he says, throw away your confidence. Even if you didn't intend to do it, you could read into that. I suspect most of his people are fairly good intended people. Be careful. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have come, done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And there again, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk again. And he goes on, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve, persevere in their souls. This is the text that then leads us to chapter 11. Some of you may be familiar with Hebrews, most of you maybe not, but that's where you have this amazing testimony of, some call it the, the hall of fame, the hall of religious fame where literally what he will do to encourage their faith is remember all those great fathers and mothers of ours, our people of faith, what they endured and how that brought them to the promised land. He starts it off with this incredible statement. Now faith, this patient faith, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's to say it's a conviction the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was not created by the word, was created by the word of God. You hear what they start with? Do you believe in God? Really? Do you believe? Not because it's convenient, not because it's popular, not because it has political, social, spiritual, whatever benefits, but do you really believe that there is a personal being that started it all? by a word of creation. If you do, by faith, understand that the universe was created by the word so that what is seen was not made out of things which were visible. Don't you remember, he says, the logic is incredible. Everything started with, you didn't see it. And it became seeable. So just because we don't see it, doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it's not seeable. God sees it, and he's asking us to act like that. And so, of course, what does he do? He rehearses these whole series of events. Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and on he goes, Rahab, 
all in moments where everything looked catastrophic. And yet they persevered. They endured. The full thing you see is about the human longing to what has been described as what was promised or a great reward. And he's saying, don't throw it away. Because how it's going to come to you is by faith in God. This is a reoccurring kind of a statement throughout all of Scripture. First John, and this is what he promised us, eternal life. He goes on and on. I won't read them all. The people of Hebrew 11 never even lived to see. Think about it. The people that he quotes in the Old Testament never even lived to see the coming of Christ. The first installment of that promise that is yet to be fully fully consummated in the coming of Christ again. So we're kind of in between the coming of Christ and the next coming of Christ, the final. And so it reminds us in Hebrews 11 how all of those back then, they all died in faith without having received the promises. But, but from a distance they saw and greeted them by faith. They confessed that they were strangers and foreigners in the world. And so there is a necessity here of a patient faith. To lack patience, you see, for you have need of endurance, he says. To lack patience is, according to verse 35, to throw away our confidence. According to verse 39, it's to cease believing or acting like we believe it. Not to shrink back. The word that's used is the Greek word that translates uh, to apostatize. It's, it's the same word. It sounds almost the same as that word, apostatize. Don't apostatize. Be patient in your faith. Endure. We're surrounded by a great history of witnesses. Endure. You see, faith is described not from circumstance or situations. It is derived from God's revelation in history, though. This is not just pie in the sky, some rant of a philosopher putting down Proverbs. Every one of these teachings that we find in Scripture are grounded and rooted in, hyster in, in historical realities. That's why it's so important that our Bible, unlike any other religious text, is a, is a history. It's a history of God and his people and historical acts and historical interventions which which over and over again validate that promises believed are promises received. Promises believed is promises received. It's the role of redemptive history that we hear over and over and over again. And he's saying, remember this, my brothers and sisters. Remember this. Don't abandon your faith. Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not med uh, medication technique. Faith is not conviction of is a conviction, rather, of conscience, a settled and firm, principled belief that is derived only from the Word of God as it's rooted and grounded in redemptive historical acts of God. Faith is not described from circumstances or situations. Faith is applied to circumstances and situations. We start with faith. Faith in seeking reasonable application according to our circumstances. You don't start with circumstances, derive a reasonable response, and then find God's rationalizations. You know I'm saying this for a reason. I won't go there. But I see it happening all around. 
faith is described not from circumstances or situation, it is derived from God's revelation to us in his word, backed by historical actions in history. Regardless of the circumstances that swarm around us, this is the point of Hebrews. Don't walk by sight. Don't obsess on the circumstances. Don't get dramatically caught up in all the drama. Transcend it in your souls. I did something yesterday I've been needing to do probably for four weeks. I've probably, as you know, many of us are in this situation. I, it's been about four at least weeks since I can think of a day when I wasn't pretty obsessed with, with uh, virtualizing this church and all the work that we've been doing to do that. And so yesterday I said, I am going to take a Sabbath, a Sabbath rest from virtuality and a Sabbath rest from the 24 news cycle. It was the best day I've had in four weeks. Just obsessing on my dog, my nature, my, you know, just, just having fun, fixing a few things, doing a few things. It was a day to remember, though, ultimately, as the whole day was just, cre just covered with this, that there's another reality here. The little red bird that flew at me while I was sitting out in the backyard is still just a little red bird doing fine. God is still living. And on it goes. I would encourage you, by the way, to think seriously about this Sabbath principle. You know, in the Old Testament, Sabbath was a principle as much as it was a day. Yes, it's one in seven that we should take that day. And, and now, in a virtual reality, maybe how we have to think about it is different. Instead of ceasing from our work, we've got to cease from watching the news or all the things we do when we're not working that are probably not very healthy for our souls. Take a Sabbath rest from the news cycle. Take a Sabbath rest from researching your Google. Take a Sabbath rest from some of these things and maybe take that time to, to meditate upon and memorize Scripture and obsess on God as he's revealed in Scripture. This seems to be the paradox here that Hebrews is wanting us to contemplate. It is what we don't see, God, his invisible sovereignty that forms the substance of our life. The conviction that well, drives not only our actions, but our emotions and our soul. Weak as we are, patient faith. Let me, um, let me kind of end with yet another story in history. I quoted from Cyprian. Cyprian there in the second century, third century I should say, Cyprian was an African of noble birth, but of an evil life, he would say. Very promiscuous in his youth, pagan, if you will. He was a great thinker, a teacher of rhetoric and philosophy. In the middle of his life, he was converted to, to become a Christian. And shortly after his baptism was ordained, he became a priest, and he was made eventually the bishop of Carthage, notwithstanding even his resistance to do so, but he was just that gifted, and that, those gifts now coming to bear upon his spiritually inspired and infused life. Well, not long after he became the bishop, the great persecution of Decius broke out, wherein, of course, everyone was fleeing. He even fled with his people from the Episcopal city that he might better be able to minister to the needs of the flock, but then as if that wasn't bad enough, and it was a horrible, horrible persecution with many martyrs. 
But not long after, in 251 AD, that was matched by a great and horrible pandemic. This pandemic, almost certainly smallpox, claimed millions, millions of lives throughout the empire. At its worst, the plague was said to have killed 5,000 people a day. A day. It began in Ethiopia in 250 AD and reached Rome by 251, and it ultimately spread all the way to Greece and Syria and lasted for approximately 20 years in various manifestations. Now, Cyprian's response was to return to the city where the plague had broken out, particularly to minister to the people. The series of attacks on the empire's frontiers continued on the left as people were enduring medical famine and drought and floods, metaphorically, but also even physically, which devastated the population. I mean, let's get real here. What do you say? To your congregation. I mean, how do you say it where it's not going to be viewed as non-empathetic, non-sympathetic, almost callous, as in, come on, don't do the God talk now, don't you see? I must confess, I struggle with this, not wanting to be perceived that way, even to preach this sermon. But here it is. What did he do? What did he say? Well, his response was returned to the city, as I said, and in the midst of the series of attacks on the empire's frontiers, continues such uh, to exasperate the effects of the pandemic. He wrote a little piece called On the Mortality, or some would say it was On the Plague of Mortality. And there he just reminded them. He did exactly what Martin Luther did many years later when he said, when the devil attacks us, you need to mock the devil. He didn't say it that way, but what he did is he mocked in so many words without being callous. He didn't mock it in that language or even in that tone. Very deeply sympathetic, very deeply humble. He mocked the plague. Now, what do I mean? Well, as a whole treatise on mortality and how mortality itself is not that bad. That's what he wrote about. I guess when you're in a situation like that, that's what you do. For the Christian death is a release from conflict, he explained, a summons of Christ leading to immortality. The faithful departed should, quote, should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost but sent before us, into the presence of God. Now, I think he might have been a little bit rhetorical there. Certainly we should mourn. Even Thessalonians tells us to mourn. Christ mourned. He cried the death of a friend. Of course we're going to mourn. Love demands intimacy. Anything that diminishes intimacy diminishes the effect of love, and we mourn it. Even for a time. Even as we mourn the lack of intimacy, physical intimacy that we experience as I preach to almost an empty room. See some of you on TV, by the way. But he preached on mortality. And that's the context where he wrote what I put on the screen earlier. Our part, my dear brothers, is to be single-minded, firm in faith, 
and steadfast in courage, ready for God's will, whatever it may be. Banish the fear of death and think of eternal life that follows. That will show people that we really live our faith. The plague later was named the plague of Cyprian. For the people, many of the people really rallied around this treatise. They began to ask very soul-searching questions. Do I really need this lifestyle to be happy and to have abundance? Do I really need this? I mean, could it be that, that I've put in my head all these terms and expectations for what it would mean for me to live a happy life? And now that we hear that the economy might fall, now that we hear that we might be in a medical quarantine for maybe more than months, maybe months and months, we don't know. What could happen? Great Depression. It's all out there, isn't it? But for the Christian, not in a callous way. Please, please, God, please hear me say that. But we say all of that, ultimately, with God, is our help, who can move things in ways we can't imagine in a way that we can still remain happy and flourishing in our relationships together. I don't know, maybe it was God's providence, but in this little situation when I've had some time to get a break, I've been watching this show. I don't know, I never like to tell you what I'm watching because I'm sure you could judge me for it, but it's called The Last Alaskans. Has anybody seen that? Raise your hands. I'm looking down there. Anybody seen that down there? No? Yeah, a couple of you. Actually, there you go. I see some. It's interesting. I don't, I've wondered, why am I liking this? I mean, now, some of you know me, and I kind of like stuff like that. I guess that's true. I like the survival world and Adirondacks and off-grid living and all that kind of stuff. But, but what I think it really is, I, I just want, it seems to be such a happy existence among these people as they literally have nothing, and everything they do has, has got to be targeting just eating and drinking. They're just surviving these seven homesteads that are allowed to remain in this, this reserve that's being established in the 1980s. And now uh, these are the last Alakans that are going to be allowed in this South Carolina-sized place of land where, where they literally live off the land without any resources whatsoever. And yet there's an amazing kind of message that comes. It comes out in the way they treat each other. It comes out in the way they just relate to the land, how they're thankful for their little fishes. I mean, whatever it is, they find out that you sit there and you go, gosh, worst case scenario is I got to go live off the land again. It's not going to happen, but that's the worst case scenario. Would it really be that bad? Might need to learn a lot. But I know that's being idealistic. But do you hear the point? It's meant as a metaphor. I think a lot of us are really rethinking life right now. And what I think Hebrews wants us to rethink is, is God really, really your first conviction as to what you need for happiness? Can he possibly move the stars in ways that you can't imagine that would bring upon us a flourishing, a flourishing that might look very different than the one we imagined when we started our careers, when we started our life. Just maybe, God is a rewarder of those who follow him.